there are alternatives and, and that you can work proactively on cities for all and cities where, uh, where we all feel that we have a place. And that big developments uh, like tourism and, and, and um, the rising of the housing prices are not something that we just have to, you know, sit with, and, uh, but we can act upon it. So I guess that is really important, a really important lesson that we want people to take away from it. Smart city, what is it about? A livable city, how do we create it? Thank you so much for giving your valuable time to listen to Urbanistica podcast season number two. I am Mustafa Sharif, an urban planner, and you're more than welcome to join my big journey of exploring the making of smarter and more livable cities. Don't forget to follow Instagram account to see the stories behind the scenes and also subscribe the YouTube channel to see the live talks. Let's get in touch on LinkedIn, share your reflections with us, with Urbanistica community, recommend the podcast to people you think are interested in Urbanistica topics. Are you ready for a new episode? Let's go for it. We're going to talk about our city book. We're going to talk about why public spaces quality is the backbone of a sustainable city. We're going to talk about soft, hard, and orgware. I have the pleasure to welcome Minush Pesters to Urbanistica podcast. Hey, and welcome, Minush. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. How are you doing? I'm fine. I'm... Um experiencing some rain at the moment but that's good for all the plants and um, so I'm easing into the the weekend with just before that uh, a wonderful session with you so I'm looking forward to it Mustafa. Thank you so much again for giving your time so where are you now located in which city? Uh, I'm in Harlem um, this depot office where um, where I work is in Rotterdam but um, as Depot team, we're located through the Netherlands and part of us is in Rotterdam, part of us is in Amsterdam and I'm in Haarlem, which is amazing because it's like little Amsterdam, not so crowded and close to the beach. So- sounds like a, a perfect city. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> that's really good. And are you allowed to go out now in the city during the COVID-19? Yeah, we, we are. We, uh, in the Netherlands, we have what they call the intelligent lockdown, as we are such intelligent people. And only like a week ago, um, last Monday, the outdoor terraces reopened. Uh, so we are allowed to go outside, like just 30 people maximum. And um, so we can go to restaurants again and the cinema. So slowly things are starting to, to get back to normal. And and how is it for you? Are you going out like crazy? Yes, I'm missing the city. Or are you still like a bit? Uh... No, I must say it's been challenging the last few months. And and of course, you feel awkward staying inwards and, and not going outside. And there's a lot of pressure and there's anxiety. But at the same time, we also, I mean, at least I experienced, I, I, I have a garden. I love to be in the garden. I started uh, collecting my groceries from a communal um, farm uh, in in the outskirts of my city. I walk my dog four or five times a day 
and normally my kids would do it or others would do it. Um, so you become much more aware of your um, the areas around you. I've come to know my my neighborhood a lot better. Uh, I take evening walks with friends uh, on occasion. Um, and you see also the city look differently. There's places in the city that normally no people would be there. And now you see people flocking everywhere and finding little spots to sit and, you know, have a conversation and, and finding room for, for, for themselves. So it is also uh, bringing a lot of things. So I was saying it was going back to normal. No, it will never go back to normal. It will be different. Yeah. Um, but at, at least we're, we can go out a little bit again. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you. Uh, it's the same situation here in Stockholm. It feels like we are more connected locally. We started to, to know each other in the neighborhood and more like by from the local restaurant and groceries. So there are so many positive things with Corona as well. Yeah, and there's lots of community sense as well. Like what you say, buying local, like all the shops have their own local baskets that you can buy. Uh, we have lots of local breweries in Harlem because it used to be a town full of breweries. And they have like small little things like on Friday night and they will bring you a small selection of their best beers. And, and this is also enabling us to support um, the SMEs in our city and all the shops and the restaurants. So, And I think also they have been reinventing themselves. So you yeah. see a lot of new things popping up, which is good. Exactly. It's from both sides, like the people and also the businesses. Yeah. Well, Minush, you are our storyteller for this episode. Mm -hmm. So how would you like to introduce yourself and please tell us what are you passionate about? Mm, okay. Well, my name is Minush Bester, as you said. I'm one of the partners at Stipo. Stipo is a team for urban development. And like I said, we're located in Rotterdam, um, and, but we work throughout the Netherlands and, and we also work in Europe and, and abroad. Um, and our aim and our passion is to work on better cities. And, and we do that in a variety of ways. But for me, what is really important when I work on cities is that, um, that we really tap into um, the energy and the uh, the smartness and the intelligence of the people of the place and, and use that to um, to make it a better place. Um, so we work a lot on participation, on uh, bringing together people from different backgrounds. So the citizens, but also the shopkeepers, also the owners of the buildings. And, and I really love it when um, often it's said when you're asked to start working somewhere um, well don't talk to these people because they won't work or if you talk to the real estate um, people uh, they're not gonna you know work with you uh, because they only think about uh, where the money is and um, so if the business case is not right they won't want to uh, comply and um, and every time we start working somewhere you can always turn this around and there is always this moment in a project that you suddenly see it shifting, that you suddenly see that, you know, the eyes popping open and people come up with new ideas and suddenly they, they, they understand that there is more to this if they collaboratively work on um, creating, you know, a better area or, you know, working on the inner cities. 
uh, than they would ever be able to do that if they were working on it alone. And it's this moment, you know, when, you know, when that energy starts flowing, this is where, you know, you have your breakthrough, but it's fun trying to organize that. Yeah, I understand this moment, this uh, when the magic happened. Yeah, absolutely. And then you'll be like, yes, finally. And of course, we, we come across a lot of moments where there is absolutely zero magic. And it's all hardship and it's all, you know, difficult. But, you know, when then finally you were able to design a process and to create the circumstances that you can get that magic, it's wonderful. Uh, and this is the beautiful thing with the city development. Like it's, has, it's up and downs and magic and non-magic moments. And also when the magic comes, this is also when ownership kicks in. And uh, and I guess this is this is so important. I mean, the moment that the ownership, that people start to feel, okay, this is not something that I um, can look at, but I can actually create with the other people. And uh, it's it's not just something that's from the municipality, but it's for me. It's it's that is when it's becoming so wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So how did everything start? Your passion about developing cities and engaging people was it when you were studying or maybe even when you were maybe a kid um well i um i studied political science so my background is a little bit odd um and i've got a background in in, um, in human rights and i was very much about um doing things justice and having people a say in things. And I was very much interested in international development. So I wanted to do developing work. I wanted to go to Africa or to the Middle East. And, and I wanted to work on uh, projects there. And, um, but some, I, I did internships with the United Nations and I slowly began to understand that if I were to go that road, it would be a very slow road and uh, it would be all about pushing paper and I just don't have that kind of energy so <laughs> I, I want things to go uh, faster I want action I want to be able to change things myself this is also why in my work um, I go from you know doing gardening with neighborhood people to doing strategy with um, the, the the mayor of a city and I love both um, so um, I started realizing that the actually the, 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 the area where you can see things are changing, where you can see um, that uh, it's possible to do things differently, um, is actually at the city level. At the city level, most, it, it becomes most clear and most vivid um, how things change. And so if you want to uh, contribute to that change, if you want to work on a better street or if you want to engage people in their surroundings, if you want to work on um, energy or climate or sustainability in its wider sense, um, the city is the perfect level to work at. It's a lot faster um, and um, it's easy to work with the shopkeepers and with the real estate owners and with the people in the streets. So there is a nice kind of energy. And, and it's also great if you have been working on a project and you come there a couple of years later and you actually say, okay, I, I contributed to this. I, you know, it's, so that was the kind of project that worked better for me. So from this perspective, I still understand, I still feel that 
um, having studied political science helps me in my work because a lot of my work is about building coalitions and it's about understanding from what perspective people come and, and it's a lot about process design and um, you know, having studied how politics works, that helps. Yeah, I think it's a good transition. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Do you believe that you're a change maker now? Yeah, I do. I do. And I think this is also what uh, what my aspiration is. And, um, and, and in that sense, this is something that I always have been since I was a little kid. Um, always trying to say, okay, it's done like this, but it should be done differently. And, and I recognize it now also when you look at kids' films, there's always this bad guy and then <laughs> people and of course they don't want to close down the toy store or you know and um and this is something that we've learned from kids on and i guess somewhere along the line a lot of people stop doing that and, and and they they come to understand and i grew up in the 80s and it was miami vice and it was all about the big money and wall street and and for me that didn't really make sense I thought it was, you know, it was such short-term thinking and, and I didn't really understand what would be the benefit in that. And, and I think if we were now in this period in time that we, we look back on that period and think how, how on earth could we think that that were the heroes? And um, so I do feel a, a, li a lot more at ease in this period because it, it reflects my values a, a, a lot better. Yeah, and I also talked with Hans in uh, Stipo, mm -hmm. and he told me like, uh, I believe that you share all, almost the same mindset about human scale and so on. So back in time, when in 80s, 70s, uh, sorry, in 80s, 90s, when you were telling human scale, mm -hmm. uh, community engagement, how was the, uh, the others reacting on what you say? Are They were telling like, are you crazy or something? What I do notice is that I did work with a lot of municipalities and things were not personal. Like a municipality at that point was a black box. And um, I had a lot of love for the internet. So when the internet started coming up in the end of the 90s, that was about the time that I was graduating. Uh, so my first jobs were, you know, working with the internet and, and not about the money bit. So I wasn't working at startups that were all about cashing in, but we were. I was working at a startup where we were looking at, okay, what is the, 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 the impact on society? How is this going to change the way that citizens are going to interact with um, the city and with politics? Um, and, and we saw that the, the new technology was giving uh, people tools that were empowering them. Suddenly you could organize yourself with people from all around. Um, you didn't have to go to town meetings because you could do it online um, and, and you could publish and you could do all these things that normally a, a newspaper wouldn't do or, you know, someone else. And, and suddenly you had that capability of organizing yourselves. Um, and, and what I noticed is that municipalities were really having a hard time because they couldn't deal with that. And they were like, OK, but what's happening here and how do I respond to that? And um, so a lot of my work at that period in time was really about helping municipalities and governments to understand how to deal with all these vocal citizens um, who had great ideas, who had fresh ideas, who wanted to, 
you know, work on their own projects in the city and, um, and that that was not something to be afraid of, but it was actually something that you um, should put your arms around and, and you should welcome it. Um, but that was a lot about learning um, how to be a person. So suddenly, if, if people would, you know, enter the arena of social media, uh, a civil servant would get a face. And that was not something that would normally happen. So, so the whole line of the alderman, you know, the mayor, the alderman, and then there was this anonymous civil servant, but that was no longer an anonymous person. So these were big changes. And yeah. that is also a kind of expertise that when I started working at Steepel, I really brought that in about um, the, the participatory work that we in Steepel find incredibly important. Um, but there was a whole line in front of it. About, and, and, and I think a lot of the municipalities have changed rapidly in that. And, and we no longer have to explain that. But we do see differences between different cities, um, some of them very experienced and, and, and really okay with working together with citizens on projects um, and other ones that are still learning how to do that. And of course, you see a lot of variety on that in, in the world as well and in Europe. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting story and very interesting journey. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it was. It and tell me about the story of our city book, the book. How did it start? What was the background of it? Well, I think the background of the book was really the success of the city. Um, our cities um, were... You know, in the beginning of the years when I started working with Stipo, it was the moment that for, for, for the first time more people were working in, were living in the city than outside it. Um, and with this enormous growth and this potential, you also saw different mechanisms coming up in the city. Um, so they were becoming more busy, they were becoming more tourists, they were becoming more expensive, and uh, there were becoming there were more, more and more different groups. Uh, being um, uh, living in the cities from different backgrounds, being expats or being migrants, uh, coming from the countryside. So it was a whole mixture of people. So also the, the livability of that city was changing. And um, so, you know, you have more festivals than I think we had. So um, in the, in the, during the, the summers than we had like in the 10 years before it. And um, so there was so many things that we loved about the cities, but at the same time, you see a lot of people also saying like, okay, it's becoming too much. I can't find a house anymore. It's always busy. So in this point, um, the talks about gentrification also started again, of course. And, and with the talks of gentrification, they also, you also heard a lot of people talk about placemaking like placemaking was causing gentrification and we were like okay no um this is never how we thought about placemaking um but of course people were talking about that little coffee um cafe on the corner and the moment you see one of those little cafes popping up in your neighborhood you know this is the beginning of this big transition it's like the the canary in the coal mine and that coffee, um, uh, that cafe was associated with placemaking. So this for us triggered really, we need to have an answer to this. And also, I guess we were traveling a lot. 
And we also saw that in other countries, um, you see also other values about public space. We don't perceive public space everywhere in the same way. And we also have different wishes. Um, so we were learning so much. And there was this big conference in Stockholm um, called for Cities, of, uh, Cities for All. And um, and that was also the moment that a lot of us um, working on placemaking within Europe started to share a lot of stories about it. And at Stipa, we already had done a lot of work, uh, research on it. And we had done interviews in the market and asking people about what their public space and what they love. The knowledge was already popping up. And this is also where the discussions became about the placemaking is political. Um, we had discussions about gentrification. Is that a good or a bad thing? And, and we started also to understand that different people talk about gentrification in a really different way. And some people see it as an instrument to really develop the city. And it's a very positive thing. And others see it as the big devil. So, um, so that was important. And after the Stockholm conference, we decided, okay, um, we really need to collect these items and all these stories. There's lots of research, there's a lot of cases. And, and we as placemakers, we really need to develop our own story on this. And, um, and also because, um, and I think this is really important for me, um, gentrification is not something that happens. And it's not something that like a flood comes over you and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's often perceived as that. Like, yeah, we cannot help it that the market forces are like this, or we cannot help it that all the tourists come to our town. Um, yes, we can, we can help that. And um, so in the book, we, we, um, we didn't only want to uh, address what was happening in the city and why this was um, becoming a problem, but also how you can, um, well, what kind of strategies there are to work on this and to be more proactive and to make sure that cities remain places where everyone uh, feels that they can be at home and that they can be a part of this. And um, yeah, so that was the big challenge. Yeah, yeah. And is it only European cities, like the stories that you collected? Yes, and this is because um, the book was, uh, the Cities of All conference was an, a conference organized by the Placemaking Europe Network. And um, so we also did a call uh, for Placemaking Europe. And it was a way of, for us as the network to also learn collectively. And, and what we also see is that the situation in American cities, for instance, is um, because we worked on this book together with a project for public spaces from New York. It is different. The challenges are different. The way that investment works in America is different. So, um, uh, so it felt it was better. I mean, the differences within Europe are already pretty steep. Um, so we felt it was better to, to do the collective learning within Europe. Um, and we did take a few examples from outside if we thought they were giving a good perspective. Yeah. Did you get so many stories that you needed to really select some of them and like refuse some of? Well, the book would turn out really thick. Um, <laughs> yes, we, we did get a lot of stories. 
but also uh, we we had a hard time not taking everything in. We tried to incorporate everyone. So we had conversations um, as editors, so the, the board of editors, we had conversations with everyone, you know, adjusting the articles so that we could really um, put them in uh, because it didn't really feel well to not include everyone. It's just when topics would really double that um, we had to make selections. Yeah. And why why you call it our cities? Is there their cities? Yeah, I guess there's an implicit notion of theirs. And with their city, we mean um, the city of the developers, the you know the city of the real estate developers, the big project developers, um, the institutional uh, organizations, the big finance, um, um, some of the private partners, and. Um, and and we work a lot with project developers and we've seen a big change in that. And I think Hans also spoke about that as well. Um, but um, of course, there, there are still uh, developers. And of course, we have a history of that um, where the people in the area are not taking into perspective. And... Um, and it's also um, about the public space. Can, can we, is it our public space? Are we allowed to do something with it? Are we allowed to use it? Um, and this is also with municipalities. I mean, sometimes, I mean, the whole development is already designed. And, and I have these conversations, if I'm in the streets and talking to people for projects that I do, I have them constantly. And people still come to me and say, okay, no, but the design is already finished. And then you have to explain them, no, you're allowed and we're going to work on it together. And, 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 and for a lot of people, that is not the way they normally feel that it's done. So in that sense, and our city is also, if you live downtown Barcelona or in, 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 in uh, Amsterdam or in Venice or, you know, I don't know how the situation in Stockholm is, but um it is no longer your your downtown. It's a tourist's downtown, and um, so. And if you live in some areas, it's um, the the transition of migration in those neighborhoods has gone so rapidly that um, where you would normally drink your beer in the neighborhood cafe, it is suddenly a Turkish coffee house, and you don't feel it like your neighborhood. So in in all these levels, I also have it with friends who live in in Amsterdam in parts where lots of expats um, started to live there, and and suddenly the baker speaks English with them instead of <laughs> of Dutch, and they don't feel at home anymore. So it happens at all these levels, and and this is why it's is it our city? So it should be. So we should work on it. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting point of view, and uh, from the content, the, the, there's many interesting stories that I would like to discuss. But we, I guess, we need a whole season <laughs> to, to go through. I will select some few points. So, why public space quality is is the, the backbone of a sustainable city? Um, well, I guess the the Corona crisis um, shows it vividly. Um, in the public space. Um, we meet, we we play, we learn how to bike, we do sports, um, we read a book. Um, this is where life happens without that, without having to pay for it. 
Um, and it's it's where um, if we talk about inclusion, um, it, it often feels like this is the place where everything is happy. Well, it's not, of course, so we know that. But it's also the area where um, you um, feel the differences, where you learn how to disagree, where you see that people have different lifestyles than you have. Um, it is so. It's also where you learn how to be a society, uh, and how you need to how you navigate the same street, and and how the one person uh, finds the street important for parking his car, and the other says, "No, I wanted to have my kids play." Um, how you can have a park where some people want to play sports and other people want to have theater or an outdoor cinema. Uh, where some people like it quiet and other people like it crowded. Um, so this is where we navigate and where we learn how to do that. It's it's important for our health. It's important, um, you know, for for the, um, the the health of the the, the how you call it, the air, the air pollution and everything. So, but in in some areas, it's also the place where we demonstrate. It's the place where we gather. Um, is where we, we, we become vocal. So it is important in so many ways. And, and we see that now a lot in Corona times. I mean, in the areas where there is not enough good public space, it gets way too crowded. And a lot of people are finding out that there is so much good public space just around the corner. So you don't have to go to the Vondel Park or the, 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 you know, the one part of the beach where everything is happening. There are so many other places where you can go to. Yeah, but how can we ensure that public spaces truly represent and serve the people who live around it? Mm-hmm. Um, well, there, there. Mm, in the book, we talk about three lines of thought or action, actually. So, um, and it begins with that. Of course, you need to design public space collectively. Um, so it's really about designing with people and, and, and the book shows a lot of ways how you can work with minority groups, uh, with groups that are not so vocal um, and, and how you have little small things like a change walk. It's wonderful to do that. Um, but it's also about working with youth, working with kids. Um, during Corona times at the moment, we do a lot of work with the kids because we can work online with them. So we have been Minecrafting and doing all these things. And I just love the, the, the feedback that we get from kids and the things that they want in their streets. And this girl told me, I want to have a cat's cafe. I was like, cats? yeah, where the, all the cats are running around. I've been there once. I want that in my neighborhood. This would be, never be something that an adult would say. So these are the fun things. And um, so learning how to really design with all these different groups of people is very important. And the book shows a lot of ways in how to do that in a longer term process, but also um, finer examples of small groups. Um, It's also about doing development differently. In the beginning, we talked also about bringing all these different parties together. And this is something that um, we do a lot in our work. And, um, and, you know, bringing the magic in that the real estate developer actually starts to understand that having good public space is, um, is helping him or her um, developing better houses where people um, feel more happy, where people take more responsibility. 
and um, um, and and also make sure that it's the area of the property stays more clean. So you know it works in different ways. Um, so we talk about um, a concept called gentrification. So it's it's like gentrification without the sharp edges. And how do you do that? How do you redevelop an area but make sure that it doesn't tip over? Um, and there's a way in legal. Uh, so in in the, in the legal sense, you can do a lot. You can do it by you know how do we did you tender uh, for your projects? Um, it's about building area coalitions. So it's also working on that area. It's just not it's not only the niceties of doing participatory work, but it's also about you know having in place the tender, the organizational where the the, the judicial um, uh, actions, and. And even if you've done everything right and you really try to do your participation real, uh, good, there will also be groups that you won't reach. And um, and for those groups, I mean, in in I don't believe and I don't think anyone of the authors in the book believes that there is groups that you can't cannot reach. You can always reach everyone, but it just means that you have to try harder. Um, so the books also the book also gives you a couple of examples in how to do that, and and really make sure that you um, reach out to these people, and and one of the um, one of the most well the, the most beautiful examples that is in the book for me about that is the um, research that was done in in the UK on uh, what they call curated sociability. And they have been researching how refugees use public space. Because, of course, being in the green, being in the, in the outdoor, being in, um, in nature is really good for your stress levels. It's good to, you know, uh, be part of a community, be part of a city. Uh, but then again, a lot of them, the refugees were not using the parks. And, and why was that? And so their research showed that the initial step of going outside, going to the park and being there um, was really a burden for them because they didn't feel at ease. They felt looked at. They didn't really feel they had a purpose. And without a purpose, they felt that they had no right to be there. So with curated sociability, what they do is they help you take that step, that leap forward. Uh, by organization, for instance, on one of the stairs in Paris, they did language classes. So they would invite um, um, refugees to have their language classes on the stairs for everyone to watch in Paris. So that meant that the people there had really had a purpose to be outside. They were having language classes, um, which helped them to um, go outside more often, uh, and feel better about that. So this is what they call curated sociability, and and I really love the concept. Yeah, yeah. And also, it's it's not that big deal that you need to put so much money in in it. It's it's very simple, very smart. Yeah, and I guess um, this is of course an aspect from placemaking that is really important. It's called the quicker, lighter, cheaper. Um, you always have to know what you're aiming at in the end. Um, but it doesn't mean that you cannot do anything now. So it's always, you know, and this is also how you get the energy flowing, but it's also how you create trust. If if you do something small and it works, people start to trust that and they will be able to take a bigger step. And maybe we can try that. And maybe that works too. Um, and so you can learn collectively. 
Yeah, and you also talk about the, the three interacted uh, aspects, the, the hardware, the software, and the orgware. What is yeah. the third one? Orgware. Yeah. yeah, what is it about? Well, orgware is, is a part, um, I mean, you can have beautiful design, and it can be human scale, and it can have all the benches and the colors, and it looks wonderful. Um, and it can be, you can have um, activities, but the orgware really makes sure that you go from place making to place management. So it's not about doing something once, it's about doing it constantly. So you want to have a seasonal program. You want to be able to involve a lot of people. You want to help them organize themselves. So the orgware part is really about where ownership is being formalized and where you uh, organize your long-term finance. Um, so you have to come up with little smart ideas about, okay, if we design, redesign this area, how can we make sure that there is money for not now, but also next year? And, and what are smart ways to do that? And how often you have lots of uh, community organizations in an area, uh, but they all work separately. Well, in the Orgware part, we, we try to look how we can get that more collective and more organized around the place instead of around an organization. Yeah, so it's like kind of how to keep it livable and yeah. self-sustainable maybe also financially. Yeah, and it's also like this is where we can step out. I mean, if we organize the Orgware really well and we want to do that, um, that will mean that, that we can walk out and know it will be self-sustainable um, for the long run and it will be able to grow and, uh, and continue to, to, be, to have an impact in that society. Yeah, I, I, I love this book. So I just wanted to say thank you so much, really. It's, it's, ama it's an amazing <laughs> book. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, we had so much fun making it. Yeah, I, 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 it. I can feel it when I read it. So it's it's made by love, you know, we say in Sweden and when something's beautiful and close to heart, so it's made by love. So well done, really. Thank you. I also wanted to ask you about the illustration in the book. They are so very simple and, mm -hmm. you know, like usually we see like a photographs or like high, what say, high quality of illustrations. Mm -hmm. What is the point of having these very, very simple illustration with just like lines and yeah well it, it is about getting a smile on people's faces but also making the threshold of reading it really low I think the designers did such a great job because um they really what we want to tell in the book they really put that in their drawings um so it makes it really close by it brings it back to who we are as people and it, it, it takes it away from, you know, the, the, the difficult and, you know, research stuff. No, it's about people and how we do things. And um, so I, I love the illustrations. Yes. And, um, and I think they, they, they help us tell the story. Yeah, true. true. I completely agree with you. And in, in Urbanistica podcast, we also, I also discuss what is the smart city together with my guests. And I believe like it's a huge topic and need one more episode, but let's like just start the kickoff discussion of the smart city. Mm -hmm. So how do you define a smart city? What is a smart city for you? Yeah, it's a wonderful question that you posted because it really made me think about it. 
um, like, like I told you in the beginning, I did a lot of work with uh, the internet and in the times that the smart city was coming up and it was all about technology. But if I would now think about what is a really smart city, is a city that really taps into the knowledge and expertise uh, and capabilities of its citizens and of the nature of the city, the ecology of the city. Um, and not just the city, but the, the, the citizens, but also the entrepreneurs, the societal organizations. I think if we, uh, the, the shopkeepers, the teachers, the artists, there's so much knowledge in that. And um, so if, if, we, if, if a city really taps into that, they will have better answers to, um, uh, for our future. Um, and they will be more embedded and they will be more cost effective um, because a lot of the things that now we have to pay for, we would do differently if we would do it collectively. And this is also where you see neighborhood corporations come in. And, um, but also if we look at nature, I think really um, tapping into the power of nature. I mean, if you use trees in a proper way, um, they will help you and, you know, clean the air better and, and enable you to build more, which is a topic at the moment in the Netherlands, which is really refreshing. Um, so if you if you have water in a park, it, it takes out stress. It, it helps to uh, take away noise. Um, so if we um, have a green that is more with flowers and there is more biodiversity, so there's more resilience in, in nature, but also in our agriculture. So I think it's about creating an abundance by really working together with all the knowledge that you have in, in terms of community, in terms of, of entrepreneurship. And, and I think technology is a way of helping to organize that and to empower that and to give it the tools to collaborate. And if we add data to that, um, we will be able to make better decisions also and to understand how things collaborate and how things are connected. So it is not so much about technology, but it's about the collaboration between people and nature and technology, I guess. Yeah. So it's more, it's more about uh, that people are smarter in the way they collaborate together. Yeah. And, um, and it is also from a different um, driving source like your first question to me was my passion um, so in a, in, a, in a regular city we might work on assignment based so like I didn't get the assignment so I won't do the work um, but if in a city where we tap into each other's knowledge and, and we really value each other's knowledge and each other's capabilities um, we, we work on a diff completely different basis with each other and, and we start our own initiatives and, um, and we start our own collaborations. And I do collaborate better if I work together with a shopkeeper and with someone who has a completely different you know, background as I. And so it's nice when these things come together and, yeah. and that will make us more resilient. Yeah. And do you, do you believe or do you see that cities now in Netherlands, we can take Netherlands and then other cities in Europe, are close to this definition of smart city that you just told us about? I think I think we're really on track. Um, we're not there yet, no. Um, I think we're practicing it a lot. I think we are getting our instruments 
uh, in place a lot better. I mean, we see a lot of neighborhoods who have uh, neighborhood funds that they can allocate themselves. Um, like participatory work is is not as a new thing. Um, so everyone knows it and it's not going, you know, to the max in the way that I would, you know, that we would love it. But um, and, and we see a lot of uh, like, for instance, in the energy transition, which is big, um, the numbers of uh, and the growth numbers, especially of um, local cooperatives and uh, local initiatives, um, having solar power, having wind power and um it is incredible. It is it's it's incredible the amount uh, that the part of the energy production that they are taking on themselves, like year after year, is growing really rapidly, um, and they're providing services to their to their own community. Um, so you see really a strong development in that, and um, so it's absolutely happening. Um, and you see communal uh, gardening, you see uh, common farms, you see the commons coming back a lot. And I think also the whole corona crisis is, has also been a push in this and helping it get more strength um, and more uh, widely accepted, I guess. A lot of more people were um, uh, got to know about all these initiatives because sometimes they're only in the happy few area. Um, yeah, so um, I think we um, we at the forefront of this development. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Great to hear that. And Minos, we are talking about the future cities. If I take you back in time, in a time machine, and you go back in time, and you're allowed to change one thing in all the cities from the architecture and urban planning and design point of view, what will you change? The role that we gave the car in our cities, um, because I guess that has been the most powerful change to our urban fabric. And um, an urban fabric that we're now trying to bring back, not only in the Netherlands, but in a lot of countries, uh, everywhere I come, it's all about walkability, uh, because this is also where you find a community. And, and also where we go away from pollution. So, um, and, and where we allow small SMEs to come up again. So the, the impact of the, the, the power that we gave to the car and the enormous space that it was allowed to take in, uh, in our cities, um, what would happen if we did not do that? <laughs> Very interesting, yeah. Look then, like then now. Mm. And and what will you add if you're allowed to add one thing? Well, it, it would have to be about nature. It would be more on the forefront in cities. So um, I recently saw um, a small map of Cairo um, about 100 years ago. And they had a structure of, of Cairo that you had like little areas and it was like um, there was the, the, the elitist house and around it there were a few alleyways and that was your small community and everyone would always have access to green. Um, very close by, it was like a 30 meters thing and there was little gardens and there was a yard with the fountain and it was a lovely image. If you look at Cairo now, this is not the image that you have. And, uh, but it was built like an oasis. 
So the the one thing that if you if you go, I don't think it will change across. If you talk to people about their neighborhoods, what do they want more? They want more green. And um, so now it's always like the last bit that we arrange. So we take the houses and we make the value case. And then, you know, on the side, there has to be some green. Um, so if I could add something, I would change that around. <laughs> and, and I also would change the way we look at green. So it can also be food green. Why would... I mean, I was in Athens last year and there were orange trees in the middle of the town. And they were like, I only have oak trees. Why don't I have orange trees? Well, because the, the environment in the Netherlands, of course, is different. But the whole concept of having fruit, having diversity of green and having it close by to people um, would have an enormous effect um on on how we how we feel ourselves how we perceive the area um and it would do a lot to our happiness i guess so um yeah i would definitely um add green lots of it <laughs> yeah bring back the greenery to the city absolutely yeah, yeah. and not make it something that is distance that you have to travel through to um but something close by do you think it's correct to bring back the greenery to the city or to bring the city back to the greenery, to the nature? Well, it, it feels that it's um, that it's an either or situation now, and I, I don't think it should be. And um, is an, a modernistic neighborhood, which was built as and what went wrong is that the density of the city is too large because it was built for cars, of course. So the open fabric doesn't work for people, but it has a lot of green. And one of the things that we're saying now, it should actually be not, um, it should be about living in a park. So the neighborhood as a park um, and not like a park where you're not allowed to, you know, walk on the grass, but, you know, something that you can use and, and where you walk through and where there is, uh, herbs and where there is, uh, you know, um, nutty trees and, you know, where there is everything. Um, so, yeah, it's this either or situation that should be different. Yeah. Yeah. So the city really has to negotiate, renegotiate its um, relationship to nature. Yeah. Again, thank you so much. It was really inspiring episode. Thank you so much again. Thank you for inviting me. How would you like to, to summarize our conversation, your reflections and three takeaway messages to all the listeners? Well, for me, it was really nice to talk in, in depth about the book again. Um, we launched it in um, before the summer and then we did a Dutch launch uh, just around December. Um, and, and we had lots of um, inspirational feedback to it. So that's always nice. Um, but for us, it's also really a book with a message. So, so we, we hope that people not only read it, but also use it. And, um, and take, really take to heart the lessons that are in the book. But it's also, it's so practical. There's so many cases in it. There's so many tools on how to do things that really help you um, to take different actions. And I think the main thing that, um, and also why we made the book, is, is that we really want to show that there are alternatives. 
and, and that you can work proactively on cities for all and cities where, uh, where we all feel that we have a place. Um, and that big developments uh, like tourism and, and, and um, the rising of the housing prices are not something that we just have to, you know, sit with, and uh, but we can act upon it. Um, so I guess that is really important, a really important lesson that we want people to take away from it. Um, there is no one recipe, so you have to figure out what works in your city. So this is also about placemaking. Placemaking is really about doing it with people. And that means that the results that you get are different everywhere in every community. So when you now Google placemaking, everywhere you will see the beautiful pictures with the umbrellas in the streets. And that's happening all over the world, whether you're in China or in Morocco or, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, but that's not placemaking. It's making a place beautiful. But placemaking is about, you know, ownership. It's about finding out with the local community what is necessary in that particular area to make it a better area. And, and the, the solution is different everywhere. So, um, so, so also use the, the elements in the book and the design strategies to, to work with your community on how to do that differently. Well, and do you have three cool hashtags? For the episode. Okay, well, hashtag our city, hashtag oh, placemaking, of course. <laughs> also, again, I guess I love the subtitle also, countering exclusion in public space. And it's a long hashtag, but it's an important one. It's fine. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And and it's we had a long debate about it, whether <laughs> it should be inclusion, but then yeah. we know it's about countering exclusion because the book is in that sense a bit more activist. And thank you so much again for giving your time and sharing your knowledge, experience with us. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. Please follow Instagram and subscribe the YouTube channel. If you have any great story that makes our city smarter, please contact me. Podcast is being produced in collaboration with Landscapes Logit, working with Landscape Architecture and Urban Planning and Design based in Stockholm and also Place Making Europe Network. I am Mustafa Sharif. Keep up the good work. Keep loving cities.